Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, and here's the title of my teaching this morning, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses. <clears throat> as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that to, were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope father our lives are anchored in you just as we sang a moment ago we confess that this morning we thank you this morning for the privilege of meeting together of gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ our hearts are fixed upon him we turn our attention this morning away from the world away from all of the things of the world, away from all of the many words that are being spoken and all of the actions that are taking place, we today turn our attention to you. Holy Spirit, we open our hearts before you. Speak to us. Enlarge us. Increase in us our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. And we give you this time in his name. Amen. I love preaching outside, actually. I always see myself in a park, especially when they're crowded. I want to stand on a picnic table and start preaching. And I might do it sometime. Preach outside a few times, and I love it. So I'm blessed to be able to do this. I want to just this morning, as I said, look at this thought of simply these words. Therefore, brothers, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. All of the things that the writer spoke of previously in chapters 1 and 2, now he begins chapter 3 by saying, therefore, consider Jesus. What is it that we are thinking upon that he is reminding us as we now embark into the rest of this letter that he has written? In chapter 2, he reminded us that Jesus partook of flesh and blood, that he became, God became a man. He left his place of glory and came to earth and he says partook took on flesh and blood and he did so he reminded us in order to taste death for all men a death that always leaves men with this uncertain dread of what death itself will hold Christ tasted that death for us that we might not have to fear it any longer he reminds us that he suffered and was made like us in every, he says, in every respect in chapter 2, verse 17. He suffered, as Matt preached so well last week, human vulnerability. He experienced our limitations. He experienced our indignations. And he said in order that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And, of course, he made atonement for our sin. 
an atonement that only, only he could make. And because he suffered and because he was tempted, he says he is then also able to help we who are being tempted in like ways. But I want to say this morning and just speak it out loud that he was more than just a good man. He is much more than a prophet. He is much more than an excellent teacher. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, therefore, consider, consider Jesus. Now, the word consider in the Greek means simply to, to look more closely. It isn't like we consider, uh, well, let's see, I'm going to consider where, whether or not I'm going to believe that. Or I'm going to add this to my life. I'm going to consider adding Jesus to my life. That's not what the word means here. It means to look intently upon him, to gaze upon him. It means to make him the conscious object of your faith. And he says, look closely. Gaze upon him who is the apostle and high priest of your confession. What an interesting statement of our confession. We're going to notice through the book of Hebrews especially that there are numerous references to this thought of our confession. So I think it's very possible that even at this early time in church history, the gospel had already begun to exist in a form of creedal confession. One of the things I love about Reformed theology is that it is called confessional Christianity. And it is called that because brilliant men sat and wrote confessions of faith, the Heidelberg Confession, the Westminster Confession, for example, that many churches and denominations hold to as the, as the statement of their faith. And so maybe even as early as this in the history of the church, there were already confessions that had been at least maybe sung or spoken or written, perhaps. He, he says, is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And this confession, this thought of a confession is important because we see that the clear teaching and truth of the gospel was already being guarded from error. It was already being the, it was the necessity to guard it from distortion. Even then, how much more? centuries later now and that greek word for confession homologeo is the word it means literally homo same to speak of the same thing logeo word to speak the same word is what the word confession means the church is to have a common confession a common word spoken that we all believe and that we all hold to and that we all speak. That's the word. And I just ask myself, why is the church today often so divided and so weak? Because we don't all speak the same truths. Because now it seems as though there can be many different interpretations of the same texts. It's a sad thing. Let me just give you a few texts quickly. I'll read them to you. First Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith, Paul wrote to Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Hebrews 10, we'll see in a few weeks. Let us draw near with a true heart of full, in full assurance of faith 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And in Hebrews 4, next week or two weeks from now, we will read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Very simply, in verses 2 through 6, the subject is this, simply this, is that Jesus is greater than Moses. For us, we would go, of course. For the people that were hearing this for the first time, this was radical. Matt pointed this out last week. These were Hebrew Christians. And he begins the book by telling us that Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. And now he says this amazing statement now to the Jews who believed in Christ, he is even greater than Moses. And for the Jew, perhaps this was not easy to believe. Let's just remember who Moses was to them. He was the man with whom God spoke face to face. He was a man who actually saw the glory of God. He was God's man who spent 40 days on a mountain with God, in the presence of God, so that when he came down, his face shone with the glory of God. He was the man who led Israel out of Egypt, out of captivity, out of bondage. He spoke straight to Pharaoh, to his face, to free the people of God. He performed great signs and great miracles again and again and again throughout his service in his life to God. He was the man who gave Israel the law of God, the laws of the covenant of God, so that they might know God. He was the man who was given the plans for the ark, in the wilderness, and the tabernacle in the wilderness, where God would meet with Israel and cover their sin and cover their shame. The whole Levitical economy, the whole Levitical system was initiated through Moses. He led them through the wilderness, and he led them to the land of promise that God had spoken to them. He was preserved by the hand of God as an infant, as a baby, and it was the hand of God that dug his grave in the desert. He was God's man. Yet the writer to the, to, the Jew, to the Hebrew Jews says this, Consider Jesus, who is greater than Moses. And in these verses, he gives us three different reasons why Jesus is superior to Moses. The first is his office. He is, he says, the apostle and also the high priest. Second reason, he said, is because he is the builder of the house of God. And the third reason is because he is the son of God. First of all, he is the apostle. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession, his office. We know an apostle simply means one who is sent by God. That's what the word means, one sent by God. Jesus was sent by the Father. He is the true apostle. And by the way, he was not sent on Christmas Day. He was sent from the foundation of the world. Amazing. An apostle represents, listen carefully, God before men. An apostle is an ambassador of God. He is endowed with the power and the authority of God before men. He speaks with that authority 
as though God himself were speaking to men. But contrasting that to a high priest, a high priest represents men before God. The apostle God before men, the high priest men before God. Jesus is not just the sent one from God. He is the man who stands before God before, for all men. The one who stands before God for all men. He is the bridge builder between God and man. He is the one who connects God and man. He is the one who brings God and man together. So Jesus is not just the apostle he is the, also the high priest of our confession. Moses was only an apostle. Aaron was only a high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ is both. He's the only one who is both. But he's also superior, not because of only of his office, but because of his work. And because of his person. And I want you to notice in these verses how carefully the Holy Spirit impresses on the hearers of this letter the truth that Jesus is greater than Moses. He doesn't, he doesn't just blurt it out. He, he, with very careful wisdom, he lays out his argument through the writer of this letter. And he doesn't just talk about their differences to begin. He speaks first of their similarities. He says in verse 2 that both Jesus and Moses were faithful. They were faithful to him who called and appointed them. Jesus was faithful to God. He was faithful to what he was called and appointed to do. John 6.38 says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Moses was faithful to the call of God. Numbers 12.7 says, My servant Moses is faithful in all my house. Two faithful men. They were both faithful. And both learned obedience through what they suffered. Similarities. But the differences between them is as great, the writer is saying here, as the difference between a glorious, beautiful, majestic home and the one who builds the home. This is the difference, he says. No matter how glorious the home is, the builder is greater. Because it was the builder who envisioned it. It was the builder who constructed it created it. And so he says Christ is even greater just as the builder is greater than the house. But not only that, as Matt pointed out last week, Moses was simply a servant in the house of God. Jesus is a son. And we can preach, and I have preached whole sermons on the difference between being a servant mentality and a son mentality before God. Too many believers live as servants only. Yes, we're called to serve, obviously. But our identity, listen, is not one of a servant or slave. Our identity is one of a son or daughter of God. And that's the distinction that the writer to the Hebrews is making here. The servant does not own the house. The son owns the house. The servant may live in the house, but they'll never own the home. The, the son will also live in the home, but he will one day own and inherit the home. Jesus' inheritance is now our inheritance. As again, Matt pointed out last week, he's the firstborn 
of many brothers, and the scripture says he is not ashamed to call us brothers as well. And I love verse 5. If you would look there with me. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Listen to this. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And I asked myself, what was to be spoken later that he is thinking of? Well, it's everything that we are speaking of today. It's the greatness and superiority of Christ. It would be Jesus, not Moses, who would bring God's people into the land, ultimately into the completeness, which is what the land represented, the completeness of God's purposes for his people. It was Jesus, not Moses, who would bring them in. It would be Jesus who would bring them, not Moses, into true rest. It would be Jesus who would fulfill the law that Moses gave them. It would be Jesus who was the true tabernacle of God who would now indwell them and lead them, not just by a cloud or a pillar of fire, but from within by the Holy Spirit. It would be Jesus himself who would become the atoning sacrifice, not just provide an atoning sacrifice, listen, but become an atoning sacrifice from sin for sin, and not just to cover it, but to remove its shame and guilt to the actual extent of washing the conscience of men. And it would be Jesus who would not just behold the face of God for a few days, but who was God himself in human flesh and blood. You see, it was Jesus who Moses looked toward. It was toward Jesus Moses led the people of God in anticipation of a city yet to be built. Are you with me? And not only that, he says in verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And then he says this, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And I want you to notice And if you underline in your Bibles the one little two-letter word, if. Because the book of Hebrews is, is going to offend us with this word again and again and again, if. And it, it can be misunderstood to sound as though our faith is conditional somehow now in the sense that it's not certain. And I want to say to you, that's not what it's saying. But it is saying that there are some things that have to be proven to be true in our lives. Do you hear the difference? He's going to use this word if again and again and again. Because there could be some of us who even might be here today or who are watching this online or who will watch it online at some point. And as things perhaps get harder and harder in the world in which we're living and it becomes more and more difficult to live for Christ and more and more costly to confess Christ. Just this week they shot again in Nigeria six believers in the back of the head who would not denounce their faith. God forbid... But 
if in fact we are faced with increasing difficulty and even persecution, there will be many who will walk away, who will not hold fast to this confession. And the word if will have shown itself to have been a proving point for them. For those that are in Christ, we are kept in Christ by the grace of God. But it's proven, listen to me, it's proven through time. It's proven through trial. The genuineness of our faith, Peter says, is, is proven through fire. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. I want you to notice these words, we are his house. Not you, but we. We're not talking about an individual faith. He's talking about the corporate nature of the church here. We are his house. Listen, we are his bride. There's no one individual that is the bride. There's no one individual that is the house of God. It's a corporate house. And I think what happens is that we're seeing even today that people take not to take, people tend not to take the church very seriously. We're rugged individualists in America, and we think we can go it alone. But the corporate community of God is the household of God. The corporate community of faith is the house of God. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, I am writing these things to you that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the, a pillar of and a buttress of the truth. There can be no statement that gives greater credence to the absolute place of the church in the world regarding truth. And I just think one of the things that's happening through this whole event that we are going through, not only in our nation but around the world, is that God is redefining and challenging our view of church. I was kind of laughing last night talking to some, some folks. It may be now that small and medium-sized churches are the thing to be because you can meet more easily. The large, large mega churches are having a hard time figuring out how to keep their flocks together. Maybe buildings that are multi-million dollar buildings are going to become unnecessary. What do you do with them? When you can't use them. And I'm not speaking doom. I'm just saying if you think out loud, what are possibilities? I think God is, is challenging our understanding of what the church is through this. I don't know how many of you have noticed, but I think how hard it is to pray on Zoom. Why is it so hard to pray on Zoom? It's not just because of the inconvenience of the technology. It's because we're not together. It's because there's not a corporate faith, a corporate voice. There's not a sense of what God is speaking to us as we are together. It's hard to get that via that medium. You see, God, I think, is using this whole thing to challenge our thinking, to deal with issues of the heart regarding our understanding of what is the church. 
And so many think of going to church as just simply going into a building for one or two hours a week. But that is not the biblical view of church. He's, he's touching on it here in this chapter. He'll build on it through the rest of the book. So far we see that it is, it is so much beyond just this thought of, of going into a, a room somewhere and meeting. It is not a human institution, but it is a divine building of human beings that God himself is building and whom he indwells. And it's important for us to understand these truths in order to keep our historical roots. What is true of the church through history must be understood by us so that we can pass it on to the next generations rightly. So that we're not passing, passing a hybrid understanding that is unbiblical of the true nature of the church. on, But we're passing on what is confessionally true of God's people. And sadly, there is so little value placed today on the corporate nature of the church. I was reading this week uh, a Barna um, poll. There's a lot of polls, and Barna is one that, you know, I'll read occasionally because they poll the church. And it was interesting to read how they were polling regarding the streaming um, that is taking place. And many, many people, obviously in the beginning, because there was no meeting together, people were streaming only, but there was a high percentage of people that streamed. But many churches have not met yet like we have. There's just only streaming. And in those churches, the streaming has dropped radically, people viewing it. Because, listen, the longer you go not meeting, the easier it is to never meet. And they ask them, what do you do while you are watching or listening to the stream? And they, all of them, almost all of them said, we multitask. We do other things. We're working in the yard or we're doing something around the house. And so it's like, how do you worship together? How do you give your heart to something? It's very hard to do. And I'm not demeaning it. Please, I'm thankful we're doing it. But what I'm simply saying is, this is not the church. This is the church. And I know you know that. That's why you're here. And believe me, as elders, we're thankful for that. It's not a personal faith, brothers and sisters. It is a corporate faith. Of course, it is personal before God. But then my individual, my personal faith is worked out in community with other believers. This great salvation in my life is worked out in my relationships with you. And in your prayer for me and in my prayer for you. And later on in this book, the writer to the Hebrews is going to strongly exhort the readers and the listeners, not to neglect meeting together. He's going to strongly encourage them not to do it. Because there is no greater privilege than being part of the community of God's people. And there is nowhere that we can together share our faith. And the point of this whole teaching was this, that we're called to consider Jesus together. To gaze upon him, to behold him, to worship him, to honor him together as a people of God. And I will say this as I close, that in the end, it is what Christ is doing through the church on the earth that matters most today. 
the church is the most important organism on the earth. Leaders in the church, listen, are the most important people on the earth. That is not an overstatement. I thank God for men and women in positions of responsibility that lead and govern. We pray for them. We pray for their wisdom. But ultimately, what matters most? What is happening on the earth today? Listen, what matters most is what is happening in the church. And I'm grieved that the church is not speaking. I'm grieved that I'm not hearing the church, that we're not able to meet to pray. I'm grieved. What the, what the nation needs more than ever is the prayer of the people of God. And not just our individual, but our corporate voice. And I just simply believe that God, what he's deposited in his church, needs to be spoken and heard right now in the, in the nation that we're in, in whatever way we are able to. But we have to be able to hear God. We have to be able to process what we're hearing through the truth of the word of God and by the spirit of God with grace and compassion and wisdom and love, speak it to those with whom we have relationship in whatever opportunities and ways that God allows it. So brothers and sisters, pray. Pray for the church. Pray for the church in the city. Pray for the church in this nation. Pray for the church around the world that, that the church of Jesus Christ would understand who it is. That we are the house of God. And as we consider Jesus together, may he fill his house with his wisdom and his heart and his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Can you sing that that, sec, that song you closed with, Matt? Anchor that, just, I love that. Father, in the name of Jesus, we worship you this morning. And our confession, O oh God, is that you are our apostle and our high priest, Lord Jesus. And before you today, by your grace, we say, yes, Lord, we will hold fast to this confession of faith. We will preach it. We will speak it. We will share it with others with grace and compassion and kindness and love. But we will speak it boldly. Father, we thank you for what you're doing right now on the earth. Through this whole season of trial, we thank you for the, the sifting. We thank you for the purifying that's taking place. We thank you, Lord, that you are separating wheat from chaff in our own hearts. And you're drawing attention to what is most important. We pray for this community of believers that, Father, you would keep our hearts joined together. We pray for those, Lord, that, that have not been able to attend, that you would keep their hearts knit to you and then to us, one another, to one another. We pray you would continue to add to us those who have a, a like heart and a like mind, that we might walk together. We pray for those that do not yet know you, that in this season, Lord, many would come to faith in Jesus' name. Oh, God, be on the move. Be on the move, Lord, Lord, by your Spirit. And awaken hearts, we pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name.